This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. While you're here, please make sure to like and subscribe, hit the red button. And if you're listening to this on podcast, please make sure to leave a review and thank you for that. My name is Judy Cho and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. And I have a private practice where we focus on getting to root cause healing. And oftentimes that's using the carnivore cures meat only elimination diet. Today, I had the honor and pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Annette Bosworth or Dr. Boz. I had a Facebook live with her and we talked and chatted and had so much fun a while back. And I will put that interview in the show notes. But I finally got to have her on the actual Nutrition with Judy podcast. So I'm really excited for you to listen to this. Dr. Annette Bosworth, also known as Dr. Boz, is an internal medicine doctor, author, mother, wife, teacher, and storyteller. Dr. Boz was born into a farming family in rural South Dakota, inheriting hard work and the expectations that all things are teachable. Throughout her medical training and career, she applied her inheritance to teach patients through storytelling and especially practical application of medical jargon. Dr. Boz's debut book, Any Way You Can, told the story of what happened when her 71 year old mother, dying of cancer, asked that very question. Her story of courage, faith, and tenacity sold over 100,000 copies and inspired many to improve their health through the ketogenic diet. In her newer book, Keto Continuum, Dr. Boz uses David's story to capture the reader's curiosity and teach how to stay consistently keto. In her practice, Dr. Boz also uses her real life stories and examples to help motivate people to change for the long term. We talk a lot about the science of why having a lower A1C is ideal and why having lower insulin is also ideal. We talk about why having ketones and fatty acids and running on true ketones is ideal for healing. I know that in the carnivore space, we Have advocates that say don't eat higher fat or you don't need the fat as long as you reduce the carbohydrates and don't worry too much about your ketone levels. But I have seen also in my practice where a higher fat version of carnivore, so a ketogenic version of carnivore, really brings healing and energy and just overall improvement in hormones. 
these sex hormones, whether it's DHEA, testosterone, progesterone, estrogen, even cortisol, all of those are derived from cholesterol. And so if we are tapping into our stress sources from excess use of cortisol or our blood sugar is dysregulated, we need even more cholesterol. Yes, we produce some within our body, but we would even do better when we have excess so that it can go to our sex hormones and it can go to even balancing our salt levels with our aldosterone. In our conversation, we talk about the importance of ketones and being in a ketogenic state for healing. If you're doing carnivore just to maintain and you're now cruising and your health is optimal, then you may not need to chase some of these numbers. But if you're still healing, if you are struggling with weight loss, and if you are just stalling in all forms of healing, weight balance, and a lot of these other things, you may just want to get into a more therapeutic ketogenic state of carnivore. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Dr. Boz. I'm super excited to have you back on my channel. I know last time we just did a Facebook Live and then I brought it over to YouTube, and I'm really excited to just have you on. But for the people that are listening and watching that may not have heard of you, I'm sure most people have, but if you can introduce yourself. Great. No, thanks for inviting me back. I I think I'm the one who said, oh, no, a Facebook Live. I had had like four fumbles in a row. So thank you for the space of not only sharing stories together, but two women really committed to improving patient care. It's it's fun to do those conversations. And I've been looking forward to this. By way of introduction, I always like to start from where I'm from. I am a homegrown South Dakota farmer's daughter who did not like doing hog chores and wanted a different path forward besides hog chores or farming. I think I spent the better part of my life uh, once I got away and was destined to uh, the path of being a physician that I can't seem to get enough exposure of myself back to that place. Uh, But uh, I think that is probably a journey that's not unique to mine, uh, that when you grow up with a place that is small town, high on relationships, very much you can poo-poo what you want about a small town USA that Everybody knows everybody's business, but I believe that's how humans were meant to be is in relationship, even the messy parts. And I think uh, that transparency that happens by whether or not you want it to in a small town is one of my gifts that I just don't run away from that. It's here's who I am. And and I think it's helpful for patients to see that the doctor may know some answers, but it doesn't mean we live the perfect life. And I love that. I mean, community is so important. I see it time and time again with research and just people saying a lot of healing really requires people to feel genuinely connected. And I think that's one of the benefits of these small towns. It's the good and bad of being so connected, but you're very connected. And I think it just adds on to healing. So I I, I can see that. Right. I have three children and now uh, moving into 16, 18 and 21 years of their lives I find that you sometimes don't appreciate the the imprint that your own parents have given you until you're noticing either the lack of or the uh, abundance of certain characteristics that come through in this next generation. And I just feel like my mom and dad had a an advantage that they had this whole little town of 800 people that also knew who I was, knew where I was, knew knew and, and you had this accountability that if uh, if you did something disrespectful and not only was the preacher going to know, your mother would find out. 
That's amazing. That's amazing. So I wanted to shift. um, Last time we talked, we talked a lot about being in keto community. And I just wanted to kind of continue our conversation. And so one of the big questions that I always get is that keto cannot be done long term, that keto affects our sleep and our hormones. And so what have you seen with your patients, especially with regards to sleep and hormones? Right. You know, I, I, I uh, think, you know, that the, after writing the first book, which was a, a book about my mom and her cancer journey and how we used keto in that setting, I left a lot of instruction on the cutting room floor for what I was doing in my clinic. And it really had to do with that consistently keto being on this continuum of keto. And I think you can see this with some of the the novice uh, advisors in the ketogenic space, and maybe they're novice, not just to keto, but to chronic disease management, that as an internist, uh, that is what we are supposed to be the experts of is how do we prevent the problem that the patient never sees. And I think it is that mentality that when you look at the journey of keto, it is a continuum. And that first wave of ketones and that flush of improving people that are you know, almost a universal insulin resistance here in our in our country, they're all going to feel this improvement in the first short term. But it's what happens after that, that uh, bring about these deeper questions about sleep and hormones. And is it even possible to keto long term? Some of the things I tell patients is you cannot say you're on the ketogenic diet if you do not have ketones in circulation for at least a few hours of your day, that you're naturally going to fluctuate between a flexible fuel inside a a mitochondria of glucose and ketones. But if your cells haven't seen ketones in the better part of a week, that's not the ketogenic diet. I don't care what the package says. And so some of these questions about sleep and hormones are way better understood and answered when we can see that they truly do cycle into a ketogenic state when they're sleeping or when they've been in an absence of eating for that eight to 10 hours, their body does do what it's supposed to do, which is flip into a ketogenic state. That can't happen when insulin is high. That can't happen when um, obesity has been rising or maybe they're not obese yet, but they're on on the rise of storing fat. And I think it's the art and science of medicine to to guide the person out of that, the fun wave, the wave where they have, a, you know, they check their ketones and their pee strip is super purple, or they have a, you know, over a three on their meter, their blood meter. Uh, but then they settle down into what I would call that after phase. And that's where finding what your metabolism can do and stressing it to a point where you're continuing to have a sense of ketone, you know, ketogenesis in your I like to see it cycling in and out every day. I mean, I I don't tell them to cycle out. They do that naturally. Their insulin resistant will do that. But the the body does predominantly burn ketones, at least during those sleeping hours, uh, becomes a place where protecting their hormones and improving their hormone state is, is easy. It's when they say they're on the ketogenic diet, but they have not been peeing ketones for the better part of a few weeks. And then they start to measure hormone levels and say, well, doc, why does it look lower than it did last year? And, uh, you know, the answer for that can be many things, but uh, especially if insulin is back to the storage phase, which uh, I contend is really the key measurement for how do you know if you're on the right path for a ketogenic state is to looking at the function, not just a level, but what is the function of your insulin? And when the insulin is winning, when it's in the storage phase, which is, you know, I think the report last month said, 
uh, eight and a half out of 10 or 8.8 out of 10 people. So almost nine out of 10 people are insulin resistant in America today. And this is, I think, over the age of, I think it was 15. It was just shocking how many people are insulin resistant. And you say, okay, for those those people, they don't produce ketones naturally. And you will find that rise uh, in insulin after they get through the first initial part of a ketogenic stage. So without some of the steps that we work on, you know, in Keto Continuum, I, I use a story to share what is it that I do in my clinic. And I continue to say over and over again, you do not need to see a physician to be on a ketogenic diet. But there are some rules that just really have turned out to be uh, very predictable. And if you know them, you'll see them coming and you can, of course, correct to really watch um, the best phase of um the especially the women that I take care of, those hormones really do flourish as long as they're not the insulin isn't winning. And that really comes down to the metrics of measuring their metabolism several days a week. So do you think that if we measure ketones, then it just kind of goes hand in hand with more improved sleep on a ketogenic diet? Right. Well, if you look at that, some of the sleep studies for why is it, um, let's just back up a little bit. So why is it that the human brain has a, a greater threshold, has to go through more changes to cause a seizure when you're in a ketogenic state. So we call that uh, an improved uh, seizure threshold, meaning it takes a lot more to make that patient's brain seize when they're in a state of ketosis versus not. And in part, that has to do with some of the cellular health and the, I like to call it the chemistry. It truly is biochemistry that's happening inside that brain. Uh, that gets lots of people glassy eyed and they turn away and say, oh, that's too much. But it truly is that cellular health that's improving when that state of ketosis is the predominant phase that that brain has access to. And much like um, when patients are in a state of seizures, chronic seizures, and then you control their seizures, the depth of sleep is how they repair away from that. So when I see patients who are struggling with their sleep or they're using medications that prevent the brain from sinking into deep sleep, and they say, what's the fastest way to improve this? I'm like, go keto and stay there. (laughs) And that means you got to be checking your ketones because they'll have the wave of improved sleep. And you can see this on their sleep studies. And then that poor sleep returns because of years of practicing the poor sleep, you know, neural pathways, that as soon as that poor sleep comes back, they're the first to say, it didn't get better. It only lasted a little while. And I'm like, I bet it lasted as long as the state of ketosis lasted in your brain. And sure enough, that's what we're able to show them as well as saying, now the next steps of keto are harder. (laughs) I know the first phase was fat-filled coffee and lots of fat and um, bacon and eggs and all the stuff that, uh, you know, it makes the Time magazine and all the all the haters want to hate. That's the stuff. But the next steps are harder to keep that body heading towards a healing process. That makes a lot of sense. So there's in the carnivore space, since we eat such higher protein, I've always been a fan of being in a ketogenic state, even on a carnivore diet. So it is true that most people that eat a carnivore diet, especially if they're eating the leaner meats, and I mean, not adding much fat, their ketones are 0.1, 0.2 in the morning, and then they feel not the best energy. And I always try to advocate for 70, 75, maybe even 80 if for therapeutic support. And the mantra in the space is you don't need to be high fat as long as you're reducing the carbs, you're in a ketogenic state. And I don't see that to be true. So for women that need to heal their hormones, especially the sex hormones, when we increase the fat, a lot of stuff heals, 
but then they complain sometimes about the weight gain because we're also eating high protein. So to get that threshold of fat higher, the calories start going up too. Yeah. You, you want to know what I've found really helpful in that space is if you're really studying that a mitochondria that is working in your favor. So again, that first wave of ketones where everybody feels great, mitochondria are working in your favor. People nice. feel good. They're losing weight and they're actually wasting energy that, that, they call it an uncoupling of a mitochondria that gets not following the rules. What I like to think of it is it's not under the dictatorship of insulin during that those those times. And as you watch uh, that uncoupling, we know that your body gets healthier, uh, that insulin gets a little less resistant, and then then you flatline. You don't you aren't going to make much of a change. But it's also at that stage where if you look at many of the women who've you know, ended up towards menopause or let's say between 40 and 60, those years where there's going to be hormonal changes. This is evolutionarily what happens, but it doesn't need to be awful if you don't sequester all those hormones into your fat cells. Well, that is again, a function of insulin. So when I look at that wave of, you know, first few weeks in keto, you know, cells are emptying, fat cells are flowing, estrogen goes up, testosterone goes up. I mean, any fat stored hormone that's been in your fat cells, like even vitamin D goes up in the short term. But once insulin goes back to storing, then you're, then those cells close again and that resource will not be available. So how can you uncouple that mitochondria in a state of a woman trying to lose weight or at least not gain weight? Uh, and that is a state of ketosis is the answer. So when I'm looking at what types of fats specifically would I push them towards, it it is the ones that lead to a high amount of ketone production. So this is the the one space where I really do say, yeah, it's hard to beat anything from a goat. <laughs> I mean, goat has that capraic uh, Latin based word, which when you look at the C6, uh, C8 and C10, they're all Caproic, caprylic, and capric acids. Those are the goat based ones because they're so, they shouldn't, coconuts shouldn't have won that war. Like, what's the best MCT? It should be goats. It should be feta cheese or something. But uh, amazing when you start pushing them to say, check your numbers, check your numbers. Watch what happens when the fat you add has even a higher propensity for producing those ketones. And it's a hack within their system, but it's also um, when, when they're struggling with that weight gain or they're in that middle of saying, I need you to, I need you to uncouple your mitochondria. They're like, what? I need ketone production to be present. You need to be in a state of ketosis long enough to then start continue to empty those fat cells or at the very least, any of the hormones your body makes in a state of high insulin. Well, insulin dictates what happens to fat and those fat built hormones, they go right into a fat cell. So they don't get the benefit of what a normal lifespan, uh, or you could say residency time, how long does that hormone stay functional before it's either stored or used? And it's really short when they have high insulin states. And so how do you know what the insulin is? You check the ketones and the glucose at the same time, and you have a really good predictor of what's your insulin doing. And then I mean, there's people that will say that eventually your insulin gets so low on a ketogenic diet that therefore we need to stimulate insulin, insulin occasionally. And so therefore that's why we should cycle in and out of ketosis. What are your thoughts with that? Yeah, I, I find that an excuse <laughs> in the real world. Like I, I think those people that talk about that don't actually see patients. <laughs> oh, uh, I totally agree. <laughs> the truth is I do not need to help people fall in and out of ketosis. 
okay, that they're so insulin resistant that when they come to see me, that their body naturally is going to want for carbohydrate burning, that when you release cortisol in the morning and you watch your morning blood sugar rise anywhere into the 90s, 100s, 110s, that's out of ketosis, people. That's welcome. Okay. You did it. You're done for the day. Cycling out of ketosis often is fueled with people who struggle with with uh, regulating their eating. And I mean that um, you can use the word eating disorder, but I think people file that in a place that they say, oh, it can't be me. And then when you study their behavior, that when they're emotional, when they're sad, when they're worried, when they're bored, they reach for the dopamine production from food. And that soothing of thyself is a nightmare for getting the outcomes that you're trying to get with using a state of ketosis. When I advise people and they have, you know, whenever I'm on a panel and that question comes up, I'm the last one to answer because you you can just go down the list and see, oh, as they answer some of those questions, I know which ones actually see patients for a living. <laughs> and then often, sometimes you can hear which ones work for a corporation where they have to write prescriptions first. <laughs> Uh, but when you're when you when you take all that noise away and you say, well, how would I get my mother better? How would I help my sister? What would be my advice for them? And that is cut the crap. If you're trying to cycle in and out of ketosis, it's because you want to break from this really difficult thing to do. Right. And I would contend that instead of chasing your tail after you do that binge, because if you've been on this place long enough, everybody tries that a few times. But instead, find out what would help you in that space. That when you're reaching for that relief. How, what, what else could we do to nurture you there? And that's the messy part of medicine. That's the part where transparency matters. Cause when you look behind the curtain, not everybody's perfect, happy, smiley. There's, right. there's the struggles, there's life, you know? And I find that's where the real medicine, that's where the rewarding medicine begins. Yeah, I I think working with so many people, really, it's instilling hope, because there will be times where people struggle. And it's letting them know that it's okay, that their diet's not perfect, that they're not perfect. And that's actually very normal. It's perfectly imperfect to be that way. And, and it's just giving them that, okay, well, maybe if you normally use food to cope, what other habit or what other thing do you enjoy? And there's a lot of that psychology when you really work with people of having them figure out, well, I didn't realize I had this negative or coping mechanism with food. So how do I now transition it to a different habit? And so I think that these things are so invaluable. Um, and, I, and I think, especially when you've, I don't know about you, but when I added kids to this equation, like as in my own children, um, I found, oh, there's a lot of these same lessons of life that somebody never slowed down to just say it out loud for patients that here, you're right. It's not going to be easy, but it's not a sucky day. It's a sucky 10 minutes. And if I can teach you how to get through a 10 minute fit, you're going to reap benefits that are, are vast and amazing. And, you know, I am an internist, which uh, means you do long relationships and difficult problems. And in my clinic, I've really been fueled by how to get peak brain performance out of my patients. So for the better part of over you know two decades now, uh, that that algorithm or that that problem solving is not just can I write the right prescription that matches their symptoms? Can I order the right lab that gives me the insight into what chemically can I fix? What laboratory problem can I fix? 
but it truly is a a space that if you want peak brain performance, there are things that have to happen in the world of health that there is no prescription for. You're, it's a mind, body, spirit that truly is, if you didn't learn this as a child, if, you're, if your family did not have this structure for you to, to, to gain these skills, well, welcome aboard. It won't take you 10 years, but you do need to be intentional about learning some skills and how to handle stress or disappointment or, or success. Right. And I think all of those are, yeah, they, nobody told me that was going to be part of medicine. <laughs> hey guys, just to let you know, my carnivore cure book is back in stock for nine months. It was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Yeah, I think that diet and um, wellness and all of that, it's its one of the keystone habits and then it sort of bleeds into every, and it makes you, forces you to look at everything else in your life. And I think that's why it encompasses a lot. Um, in terms of the ketogenic diet, do you feel that it's the therapeutic approach for cancer and Alzheimer's? And I'm asking you this because I get a lot of, I just got diagnosed with cancer or my family member has, should they be on a ketogenic diet? Well, I will tell you, if you, when you get stuck in that spot and you're worried about what to say, no better recommended, this is not trying to be self-perpetuating, but I do this too. Cause I get that question too. And I don't know the people and I'm trying to, to answer their question with my whole heart, but not give them medical advice that would supersede their own physician. Right. And that's where I send them to the book any way you can. And it just, it is truly my struggle of saying what? I've been telling patients this, the opposite of this for, you know, my whole career. And now it's my mom. And what, you know, when you pull back all the noise and you, nobody's looking, what is it that I told my mom? And so in that story, you can see that it isn't a one blanket fits all for any treatment plan, but I would contend that anybody fighting cancer, the lower the blood sugar, the higher the ketones, the more often they're in a state of ketosis, the better the chemotherapy works, the faster the body repairs, the harder it is for cell division to happen in a superfluous way, in a way that cancer likes to grow, that there is a signaling noise inside a human body that is strikingly in your favor when you're in a state of ketosis, it's not an accident that I, I did this for my, my mother who'd already been struggling for can with cancer for 10 years. And what a profound gift to be able to rescue her out of the edge of you have six months or left because she refused any more of my Western medicine. Uh, she's like, you, I let you do this twice and you, you ruined my brain. <laughs> she's the mother who sewed every one of my clothing until I was 10 years old. And she goes, I forgot how to use a dang sewing machine. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, sorry about that, mom. So th the point is, is that the toxicities of those medications uh, are very real. And if, for the record, you know, in that story, she went on to have a flare of cancer where we did use chemotherapy again, but what happened was so remarkably different, so strikingly different that her body was healthy enough to handle the hit that medicine needed to do to apply it to the cancer that was, that had happened or had already always been happening, but now needed treatment. And she came out on the other side with the best outcome that, I mean, an outcome I didn't, 
I didn't think was possible. I couldn't even pray for that outcome. It was so out of my mind. So to answer that in short term, when it comes to the cancer patients, I tell them to read the story. Uh, Not only does it guide them through a very clinical approach to this, a much more strict approach, might I say, and if they have cancer, that's where I push them to start. I show them that in that case where someone calls my office and says, so-and-so has cancer, can you help them? And they live not in my community. I, what what it always pushes me to pause on accepting them into my practice is that it is more important that the person living with them and journeying with them does this with them. And that's what happened in that book. I didn't want to be anymore. I thought, oh, I don't need keto. And when I stepped and said, mom, I'll do it with you. Uh, that's That was the miracle. That was the place that said, not only did I get better and forced to learn even more about how not to do keto maybe, uh, but but she had a partner in this journey that loved her. And there is no substitute. There's no prescription. There's no doctor that can love your loved one as much as you can. Right. And to show the journey that they're going to fall off, even with cancer as the diagnosis, it's hard. But if they have you to model behavior for, if you can help each other to not to stay the course, that's the win that I've seen, you know, whether they need chemo or where they end up with the results, the strictness of the diet has little to do with, can they stay the course? Can they stay the journey? In the name of Alzheimer's, you have lots of data (laughs) that says um, when you add that fuel of fat into the algorithm of brain cells, uh, not only does that help improve the performance of everybody that, especially if you haven't experienced a ketogenic state, and then you end up in a ketosis for like a week, like each day, you're like, this must be what a trip feels like, because I feel so good. And when you watch the functional MRIs, especially of those with mild cognitive impairment, which is the stage right before Alzheimer's, we see functional MRIs of more of their brain that increases in awareness, I mean, in function, that they are they are recruiting more cells to, to do their job um, because you now have this extra fuel helping you out. And I'm profoundly impressed with how little our prescription medications do in the setting of what memory problems do and how how many possibilities that I wrote off that I don't know how to fix that. And now I don't get to say that anymore. I have to get better at teaching them how to stay the course, which ends up with conversations about community and (laughs) relationships and messy parts that don't have a prescription. If there was a person that wasn't able to produce enough ketones, maybe they're not able to tolerate enough fat. Maybe there's some other reason. Would you then recommend, especially if they're maybe suffering from some level of mild cognitive impairment, would you then recommend the next best option is exogenous ketones? Oh yeah. In fact, when I look at people who bring the, I mean, again, it's that my mom has cancer. My mom has Alzheimer's. My dad has had a stroke and uh, I can't be near him. I'm like, then make sure the nurse fills his cup with exogenous ketones. That again, I don't like writing Prozac for patients, but I I write Prozac for patients when they are in the ditch that they can't get their brain out of such a severe depression. But in the same breath, what every physician should be saying is, well, this is not meant forever. This is meant to get you out of the ditch. This is a crutch to get your enough serotonin in that synapse to just help a little bit. And I know there's a recent study out about does serotonin even do anything, but I'm like, 
put that aside for a second, <laughs> go to blood pressure. <laughs> when, when blood pressure is so high that we know it's damaging the back of their eyes, that it's damaging their kidneys. And I give them a blood pressure medicine to say, this wasn't meant to be forever. This right. was meant to be until you figure it out. And when it comes to cognitive impairment, I, I love the letters I get from patients saying, I just put ketones in the water. I made sure that she got, you know, a drink of that every morning and at, at noon. And then the little nurse's aide, you know, did that for my mom in the nursing home. And she now was able to move home. I mean, those are miracle stories that said, we can't get out the front door. We can't get out of bed in the morning when they're, when their dementia is that severe. And I don't make any promises for that because that those are miracles. I don't know how they did that. I don't know how that was possible, but in the, in the bigger scope of when people are struggling and they can't either get the rules straight. They, I mean, they, they live in a nursing home where they don't get to really choose their foods. Well, the presence of exogenous ketones have very good evidence for especially improving cognitive function that I have a couple of fun stories of, uh, you know, girlfriends that are patients and they come in to see me and say, you know, I don't want to start on Prozac. It affects my libido, you know, whatever it's, but I'm having a tough time. They're, they're, they're having stress. And I said, okay, here's, here's two paths forward. I'm going to give you, you know, a week's worth of exogenous ketones and I will fill the prescription, but I'm going to ask you not to fill the prescription for a week and watch what happens when you switch the fuel. Just don't change the way you do your carbs, just drink ketones for a week. And I cannot tell you the number of girlfriends that have said, I mean, this has happened in patients, but the girlfriend stories seem to be like, uh, it, that's just such an intimate, like I would not take that medication and I can see why people want to take that medication sitting in the chair you do year after year that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can write your prescription. That's not the problem. Here's access to the prescription if you want that, but try this first and then look at the power you have for not only feeling better in your brain, but your immune system. And oh, by the way, you might lose a little weight. What woman ever said no to that in their forties, you know? And that awakening of astrocyte function, of brain function, and really associated mood stability, and then remarkably improves sleep within that about, I like to not overpromise sleep till about day 10, because okay. a lot of things are going to sleep. But amazingly, by the end of week two, they say, I can't believe how much better I sleep. And that's when I say, all right, those exogenous ketones are for, uh, for the short term. Now I need you to actually clean up your clean up your act to, if you want this without a prescription, which everybody in theory does <laughs> wants no prescription, but it's hard. Yes. And then, you know, talking about all of these ketones and then it's the competing glucose that affects it all. You know, what is it really about glucose and the high A1Cs that really affect our health? Right. You know, it's funny because you know, there, I, I don't know if everybody else does this, but I have a, a speaking season that I say yes to. It has everything to do with when my kids can still live if I, if mom leaves. <laughs> so it's usually end of the school year and speaking throughout the summer that I will say yes to speaking engagements. And for this season, I had been uh, looking for something that I, I, I kept teaching patients where they had this aha moment. And uh, hemoglobin A1C was something that I had been teaching for a few years, but really in the in the space of medical students or, you know, patients saying, no, your A1C of 10 is really destroying brain cells. Let me show you how. And it was through this uh, discussion of, yeah, we have you check your blood sugar and we're looking for what is it in the morning. 
But what is really remarkable is when people get the benefit of a continuous glucose monitor or they check their numbers often enough that they say, dang, I ate that. You know, they usually don't check after they have eaten something bad, but if they eat something they thought was going to be okay, and then they check it and like, it was 165. Why was my blood sugar so high? I'm like, you see that average blood sugar that I check every three months, that hemoglobin A1C, that's what I'm chirping about is that you're out of whack. You're there's taking, there's way too much sugar floating around, which means your insulin isn't doing what it's supposed to do, which is get it out of the bloodstream. When glucose is too high in the bloodstream, it kills people. It, it swells. And in fact, it swells the brain to the point of death. And that uh, advanced swelling on a cro low chronic nature is diabetes, high blood pressure, Alzheimer's, dementia, all of those things that we keep talking about. When you do it in an acute setting where boom, it goes, well, that's, that's a, what a type one diabetic ends up with super high blood sugars of over 600 for a week and their brain gets trashed. I mean, it's, it's really diff difficult to recover from that, but it's in that, in the understanding of what we learn when the average was that high that not only do the short term have cell death, but those those carrying units that we're measuring for hemoglobin A1C are supposed to be carrying oxygen to your body. And as you look at the seats for how many seats do you have to carry oxygen, if one of those seats, which is inside your red blood cells, comes in contact with a blood sugar, the sugar in your blood concentration and the sugar concentration inside a red blood cell are equal. It is, it is permeable. Glucose is permeable to the red blood cell. Unlike any other cell in the body, it can go in and out without anybody's permission. So the average blood sugar in your serum and the average blood sugar inside that red blood cell are the same. So as that average goes up, it will like splat like a piece of gum on that seat that's supposed to carry oxygen. And when you start sacrificing those oxygen seats, you don't get to reset that until you recycle that cell through your spleen. So for a hundred days, now that, that seat can't carry oxygen. So it's a little less oxygen to your brain, a little less oxygen to your heart, a little less oxygen to your endocrine or hormone system. And when you spend time with it chronically that high and they say, well, how does it slowly kill you? I'm like, it's because it's robbing you of the oxygen delivery at the point, at the cell, at the level where <laughs> your kidney really wants that oxygen and you just filled it full of sugar. And now that seat is gone for the next hundred days until you recycle it. And I think it's a complicated process. So I used a lot of cartoons to, to teach this, but I, I really wanted the levity of people to be able to see, no, it's, it's a pretty straight correlation that the higher your average blood sugar, the higher the disease state, how many years have you been on the planet? And that's where we start kind of growing this list of problems that as adults are directly linked to hemoglobin A1C that in other uh, ways of measuring are directly linked to how well you can oxygenate and fuel that body at a cellular level. Do you have a range where you like to see the A1C? And then I know that there are certain people that after a long period of being on a ketogenic diet, that their A1C gets low. Is there a point where you think it's a little bit too low? I don't think of too low. Okay. I mean, there, there are times when a red blood cell lifespan isn't what we expect it to be. Right. So there will be er an erroneous lab test, meaning the lab's going to tell me something that isn't probably true to their average. Okay. So let's set aside that. Um, but what, what is very remarkable is 
I was having this debate with uh, Robert Lustig, who takes care of kids. So he he's a pediatric endocrinologist, but you know he he's not the biggest fan of keto. He doesn't hate keto. He's just not in my world. And I intend that it's because you you send them to my clinic when they're fifteen, and then I get them for the lifetime. So right. the long term problems are very much linked to what that average blood sugar is. And you look at some of the studies that get those blood sugars down into the five or 4.6, which, you know, 4.5, 4.4, those are really low A1Cs. And when you hear Dr. Lustig talk about it, he's like, well, that's associated with hypoglycemia. I'm like, not in my clinic. That's associated with a more persistent state of ketosis and really reining in on that uh, ability to regulate are you eating food to nourish or do you have an inappropriate relationship with food that is now stimulating a higher blood sugar than it should? You know, I, I just, I think that average blood sugar is just another easy report card. I think of uric acid and A1C to be two things that say they're hard to change. So don't get frustrated when you see them, but changing them is that slow, steady, make one more improvement, slow, steady, make one more improvement. And when you watch people that do that Tra that trajectory of change. They have hemoglobin A1Cs that are 4.8. They have uh, uric acids that are 3.9, 4.2, really uh, well-controlled numbers. But if they do a flash in the pan, I'm on a keto diet for the first six weeks and I feel great. And then they check these numbers and see them high. I'm like, well, that has to do with the last 30 years. Right. <laughs> we, if you want that to change, uh, you got to slow down with me. You got to talk about some of these things that aren't there's no diagnosis code for saying I'm, I get crabby when my blood sugar goes low at six o'clock. Well, welcome to the human race. <laughs> and then at KetoCon, you, um, you shared that there's now a test that you can do your A1C at home. Ah, I love this. So again, it is um, inside those, your red blood cells is where this hemoglobin lies. So there is a test that you can drip your blood onto a sponge and this organization, I love this team. They are so innovative and they are really forward thinking in where medicine, I think, will go, which is get the doctor out of the way. If for people who care about their vitamin D, they you can drip your red blood cells and measure vitamin D. If you want to check your hemoglobin A1C, drip your red blood cells and send it in. No one needs to know. I mean, you don't have to tell me, but it, I'm not the most important person to know. The most important, important person is you. I mean, right. you should care about it. And I, I just find the empowerment inside patient care begins with passing over that ownership. Like, yeah, you don't need a doctor degree to order an A1C. What's your average blood sugar? It's a great thing for you to know. And $40 and that, you know, there, there are places I think you can go to a lab and, you know, get it a little cheaper, but when it comes to hassle-free on a sponge, you know, $35 the hard way or $40 the easy way, I'll pick the easy way for my patients every time. And um, you can find it. It's, it is on my website. I, I was one of the first ones to say, I've been waiting for this test to come out okay. because it's freedom for the patient. Like, don't make me monitor it. You should monitor it. And so I I, I co-branded it with them. But it goes back to the team in Sioux Falls, South Dakota from named Omega Quant. And they're also ones where you can check uh, what types of fats do your red blood cells made up of? Like, do you have any trans fats? Are, you, are the foods you're eating having any trans fats in them? And you'll know because in the last three months, those red blood cells will have trans fats in them. Um, so it's a great way to check that. That's the only way you can check that. And then they have how many omega-3s do you did you consume? How many omega-6s did you consume? 
And as much as that nuance is it's a little more education for the patient to understand it, uh, vitamin D is pretty simple for them to understand. And the average blood sugar is pretty simple for them to understand. And all those can be ordered. You can leave me out. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, I um, I use their omega-3 test and I interviewed Dr. Bill a long time yes, ago. Bill yeah, Harris, yes. yes. Oh, he's and great. <laughs> I loved it because there was a lot of this omega-6 fear mongering in our community. And he talks mm-hmm. about how our red blood cells will do its best to balance is before there's disease. And I love doing that because a lot of carnivores don't like eating fish because it's red meat just tastes better, but then they'll Mm -hmm. do the blood work. And I see a lot of people being very deficient in omega three. So that's why I love that test. Um, so I, I didn't realize it's the same person that does the A1C testing. That's crazy. Yes. And they are just, you know, so this is even funnier story. So Sioux Falls, South Dakota is this, you know, it's this little town. I mean, not quite as little as I grew up in, but that's where I was on the medical school staff. And that's where I had been. I went to medical school at the university of South Dakota. And so I was, I was researching this test, Omega Quant. And I was like, oh, this is such an innovative idea. This is, and I, I saw Bill Harris's name, but I mean, it's just such a William Harris, like, okay, it's not like everybody. (laughs) And then the day that I realized, oh my gosh, this guy is like two miles from me. I drove down the street and said, Bill Harris, why didn't you tell me you did this stuff? (laughs) Anyway, so it's such a great, again, community. Like give him the praise. He deserves it all. Their team has been very, again, forward thinking. Where is medicine going is, I mean, when I look at the number of people that want to come see a physician that takes care of keto, I'm like, no, read the book, uh, read the book, (laughs) go, no, uh, you don't need to see me, but there is some important information out there that they should know. And praise God for YouTube. I mean, what a great way to disseminate the information and get their their best access for the price, right? Yeah, I agree. I'm, and that's why I only work with people after they've done carnivore for a while or when things don't work and they're not feeling the benefits. And that's when I help them troubleshoot. But everything else, especially the beginner's information, a lot of that support is really available out there as long as they're proactive about it. But you're right. I think YouTube just has a plethora of information. So it makes Mm -hmm. sense. You often share about your BOS ratio, and I think it's something to do with the glucose and ketones. Can you share how that's a much simpler way to understand the GKI ratio, I think, and just where you strive for, I guess, the way you're eating would be the ideal BOS ratio? Right. So uh, the story, I think the origin story is actually interesting to hear about. This is, again, story of Grandma Rose, my mom, who was not feeling good. um, And I needed we had we didn't check blood ketones for the first several months because she was doing great. And then then life happened and I needed her to pay attention to some things and I needed her to have a GKI of one to one. And I'm like, okay, mom, I need you to take that glucose and take it into a different unit number. And then I need you to reduce the ratio of the ketones down to one so that it's in a GK. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. She's like, forget it. No, thank you. So, I mean, honestly, she's uh, an account. She was the county auditor for years. It's not that math was hard. It's that she was sick and she wasn't help. She needed help. And so I said, okay, mom, take the big number and divide by the little one. And I'll get back to you as to what it needs to be. So I went out and calculated, you know, a GKI of one to four is what a Dr. Bob's ratio would be at 80. So again, when I look at where, so here's the, here's the four numbers I like to teach people. A Dr. Bob's ratio does look at the two molecules, just like a GKI, the two molecules that insulin regulates. And when you have a glucose of a hundred, but your ketones are 0.1 
that's, you know, a Dr. Bob's ratio of, you know, a thousand, a million, whatever, way too high. In that same setting, if that glucose is 100, but the ketone is elevated, uh, that Dr. Bob's ratio says, oh, insulin isn't very high in this patient. When the ketone was low, it's a reflection that even if you test the insulin, I want to know what's the function of the insulin on its cells. And that is so patient specific in time, meaning it can be different this week, uh, next month, uh, the month after that, your insulin sensitivity will change based on inflammation, based on sleep, based on, you know, how well your body's managing. So to send them to check insulin every time you need to know what the function is, even an insulin level doesn't get me all that answers. When you look at a setting where glucose is hundred ketones or 0.1, that's an insulin that's abundant. There's a lot of insulin, even if the number is not high, it's impacting them, the cells very heavily. When you get the ketones high, now you can be confident that the insulin is lower. And even if the blood level was a certain number, its impact is much more insulin sensitive. The cells are listening to insulin. So when you look at that Dr. Bob's ratio, there's four numbers that I care about. And that, that change as the patient changes, as they lose weight, as their bodies get healthier, or as their bodies get cancer, as they stop sleeping well. And that is when the Dr. Boss ratio is below 100, you're going to lose weight. That is where I see the uncoupling of that mitochondria. It can now do something that it couldn't do before 100. And, you know, this is this is not published anywhere. <laughs> this is just what I see in my clinic. Um, but then when the Dr. Boss ratio gets to 80, and that's a GKI of four to one. So they would call it GKI of four. That's where if they can hit that at least once a day and they're healthy, that's a great maintain this number. Um, you might lose some weight at 80 uh, as well, but that 80 is if you're maintaining and you think I don't need to do, I don't have any problems. My life is perfect, but I, I want to maintain their health and try to hit a Dr. Boz ratio of 80 a few times a week. But if they're fighting something like an autoimmune disorder, um, now I need to supercharge things. I need to get things a bit higher that I want that Dr. Bob's ratio to be 40 or less. When I'm working with mental health issues, I really like them hitting that Dr. Bob's ratio of 40 or less a few times a week. Like I want you stressing your system so that you are decoupling that mitochondria, that you're really pushing your metabolism a few times a week. And then finally, a Dr. Bob's ratio of less than 20 is a GKI of one-to-one. -one. And that really is um, what I use for the protocol for people with seizures or with cancer patients. And again, we're trying to get that to, to get and stay at least under 50, but I want them hitting a 20 once a day. And it's very hard. It's very difficult. So let's talk about the examples because I'm sure people are going to ask like, what, how do you get to that 20? So is that like, if you were, your blood sugar was 80 milligrams per deciliter, would that be mm -hmm. a ketone level of 4.0? Right. Well, so yeah. Uh, so if you're if your blood sugar is 80 um, and you have a ketone of two, that'd be a Dr. Bob's ratio of 40. Okay. But if you're oh, trying okay, to okay. get mm -hmm, if you're trying to get a Dr. Bob's ratio of 20, um, I'll tell you you have to get the blood sugars under 70 to keep the ketones that high. I mean, you can always burst people up into that 3.5 or you know, four range when they first go keto. Sure, but sure. when you are truly in this churn of how's their body functioning, you got to lower the blood sugar. And that means tiny little meals, 
very high in fat. The volume, the only time I, I check volume of food is when we're in that advanced therapeutic state. And I wouldn't recommend people doing this without a helper. Uh, I mean, you really should have a supervisor doing this. But I have people all the time who fast to get to a Dr. Bob's ratio of 20. We know that that really is a, I mean, the other thing I like to talk about is uh, when you have a Dr. Bob's ratio of 80, you might hit autophagy or that cellular reprogramming of, you know, wasted proteins that are hanging around. At 40, you can be pretty confident that you're getting autophagy, but you can be very confident that you get an autophagy at a Dr. Bob's ratio of 20 or less. So when people are saying, well, how do I reverse flabby skin or how do I, is there a chance I can get my thyroid to go again? And I say, well, you got to, you got to stress the system in a positive way. So, you know, hormesis, you, you want to push and then go back to baseline. And so during a push, I want, I would like to see their Dr. Bob's ratio to hit a 20 if they're really seeking for some advanced outcomes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I eat a carnivore diet, my blood sugar has consistently been higher um, compared to when I was eating a ketogenic diet. I wasn't really eating meat then though, but my ketones were probably, I mean, but that, that was me first starting. So it'd be sometimes six or seven, but my blood glucose was in the seventies, but as I've been eating just mostly meat-based my blood sugars are usually in the nineties, but there's not much of an up and down, but my ketones are still decent. So there'll be one, but they're not. So it's not the super low BOS ratio whatsoever. And what I found is that most of my clients, if they're not hitting 1.0 in terms of ketones, which again, in the community, they don't push that because they say, as long as you reduce your carbs, but I see more healing when we start focusing, like at least get the 0.8 grams per one pound of ideal weight in terms of protein. But then you really need to use that fat lever because then if you're not in a ketogenic state, you're not going to get that healing that a lot of carnivores desperately want because they're very insulin resistant. They've had diabetes. They have all the autoimmune. They have a lot of the thyroid imbalances, hormone imbalances, but they're not in a ketogenic state of carnivore. And Mm -hmm. I see that. um, And I think this is where this ratio is really important and people won't get there unless Mm -hmm. they eat higher fat and maybe cut down a little bit of that protein which is yeah yeah the other the other place i like to lever in those situations is that m- most of my people are carnivore by the way okay i mean okay. when you say t- tell people to keep a 20 total carbohydrates or less <laughs> again this is the therapeutic side of the keto if you want that i don't try to sell them the, the whole uh <laughs> volume of what you're going to give up in one moment. So they eventually figure out that if you're really keeping your carbs less than 20, there, there isn't a lot of room for vegetables. Um, But uh, in that spirit, when they are looking for that advanced rate of healing, I do push them to get fats that are higher in MCTs. So I, that's that feta feta stuff. Um, Even just supplementing MCT isn't such a bad idea, but I I really do push them to take that eating window and Uh they're, uh, you know, people's eating window of um, six or eight hours during the day, they can usually handle. Um, but when I start squeezing them down to four hours, almost always they like it to be late at night. So then mm-hmm. I give them a choice say, all right, in your life, if you can get your eating window down to, you know, five hours of volume, and I mean, no chewing gum outside that five hours, you are not stimulating any of those enzymes that come along with mastication, like yes. chewing. So five hours is the best they can do. They have kids, they have husband, you know, whatever they have life. Then I need you to do some fasting throughout the week. And we don't use the F word until it's 36 hours. Okay. So we find a regular rhythm where instead of limiting the fat or, um, you know, adding fat 
that you say, man up, you can go without food for one day. So you have that five hour window close on a, on a Sunday. And then Monday is the one day where you don't eat. And then you, you get to 36 hours and then you can open it up again for five hours. And boy, it's just amazing what happens at, um, at 36 hours fasting. And sometimes I, I have really resistant patients, um, meaning they've really marched along that keto continuum. They've got a nice eating window. They're, they've got really high quality fat. They don't, aren't, they aren't, they aren't like just drinking cream. It's really a, a fat. Okay. <laughs> and, and then they, they, they stall until they do get to a 48 hour fast. Um, and so I tell them it's a sign of insulin resistance, but it, it is such a supercharge that not only does their, their metabolism uncouple or do the right thing during that time where they're fasting, but for days later, you'll see that boost uh, of their metabolism and their ketones are better flowing. And, um, and then they don't have the weight gain because they went one day with, a, with none. So not easy, but. And then what about, um, so the concern I see with some of the women in the between fifties and sixties, seventies, is that in that four hour window, they don't eat much. So then the issue ends up becoming that they're under eating. So how do we circumvent that issue? Right. I mean, it is really important that satiety is what they're chasing. Okay. And I, I like them to have figured out what satiety feels like before we get to that. Oh, I see. Um, okay. Yeah. So satiety is a, I mean, it's a weird thing because we eat and we stretch our stomachs before in, in the previous version of our lives, right? And that stretch of our stomachs is a different sensation than when we surge hormones because of fat. And now we can feel satiated, even though you only ate half the can of sardines. Right, right. So, I don't think you're full yet. <laughs> Keep eating the sardines. But so that fat, I mean, it is a dense amount of uh, calories per bite. And so I think once I really have a, a confident understanding that they know what satiety feels like, they know what that hormone surge feels like, then I have a better, I can flex a few things like, okay. look, you could get all this fat in like eight more bites of feta cheese or of one can of sardines. You're, you know, there's a way to get to that, um, the level of calorie and fat substance, keeping it in those four hour window. I mean, it's, it's a, it's like anything, uh, Judy, there, that change in asking somebody to do something and they do it great for like a week. And then, then it's hard. <laughs> and they're like, well, I did that and it didn't work. I'm like, tell me how long you did that. Tell me exactly what you did. <laughs> and inside the details, they don't mean to, but they're like, oh, well, I only did it for like six days or I only did it for two weeks or whatever. And you're like, that's okay. I've been there. That's how this looks. Here's what we do now. Right. And then this goes to my next question of you share your Dr. Ba's ratio and sometimes it's not perfect. So, you know, I, I can guess why you share, but I'd like to really know why, why do you share um, less than ideal numbers? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so uh, I think it has to do with that hometown of 800 people, probably <laughs> that, you know, transparency about what happens inside the doctor's world that I, uh, you know, I hadn't checked my own A1C in years because uh, I didn't need to, but of course this home test comes out and I'm training my team to check A1Cs and we all check them. And my A1C was 5.5, you know, which is higher than I want it to be. That's an average blood sugar of 114. Mm -hmm. And my goal is to get it in the fours and close, as close to 4.5, but I don't think I'll get it close to 4.5 with teenagers in my house, honestly. Uh, but having said that, you know, that transparency of what are my numbers and what am I going to do about it? And, you know, I think the other thing that I see 
when patients see, I don't know, have you ever gone to a dentist with no teeth? No. Right? Okay. When you ask a physician for help and they're not healthy or they've got um, places that, that, you know, are hidden or they're obese or, you know, whatever, they smoke cigarettes. So some of the like no-nos in medicine, if you're going to advise people on health and please tell me you're working on it. And I just think that's a better space to attract people to is, oh, for heaven's sakes, I'm not perfect. Uh, but I do really find the accountability of sharing that, yes, when I fast, my numbers go up. When I flex my system, I can really show you some great numbers. Mm-hmm. But that didn't happen the first time I did you know, a, a fast. It didn't happen even um, probably the first six months I was fasting. And now I've got this rhythm that if you're in my support group here in Tampa, which I, I do for free, then you know that I fast. I start on Sundays and I finish on Tuesdays and it's a usually a 48 hour fast every week. And sometimes I don't do as good, but those morning numbers, first thing in the morning, as I teach patients that, yeah, if, if I eat late at night, if I have a glass of wine, if my eating windows later in the night, even though I only ate for two hours, right. guess what happens to my morning sugar? You don't need to try to cycle out of ketosis. I mean, I'm pretty good at this and look at my numbers. That's not in keto when I eat late at night or when, so I, those are the places where I think it also lends credibility that, yeah, I can take care of complicated problems, but I have lots of grace and forgiveness that this is hard. And truly it is in a space of having the community that's journeying with you that I think makes this an attractive place to spend the rest of my life. And I think it makes it more approachable. Sometimes when people, when I first was sharing my journey, I didn't share a a lot about me. And when I finally shared that I was in the mental hospital, I was struggling with an eating disorder and people, I got a few messages saying I, they felt I was much more approachable because when they think they're working with something that's picture perfect, they almost feel that they may feel shame if they explain that they weren't perfect on their diet. And I think that's where when the provider, the practitioner can share more humbling stories, then it's people know, okay, I don't need to be perfect to have healing. Isn't that what I would want in my advisor, in my friendships is to say, yeah, when I, when I need the grace of being in relation with somebody, please let it be somebody who understands what it's like to fail. <laughs> and, and you don't have to close too many exam room doors to know that everybody's been there. Right. It's the void of discussing that, of, of living in that moment saying, it isn't shame I feel. I'm sad. I need a friend. I need help. I need a partner. I need accountability. And those types of, you know, people will re- pick me. I'll help you. <laughs> I mean, people do want to be good. Yes. I just think they need the the place to walk towards. Yeah. And, you know, there's always new science that comes out and we're always, lots of us are chasing that new evidence-based research, but that's not always going to help the patient stick to the healing and the journey. So what have you found more than giving people the newest science, but what have you found that really helps people to stick to this way or have the hope to continue on, even if it's not working perfectly? Right. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you that you, you did hit on a hot button that on my YouTube channel, I don't have experts come on. I mean, there are so many channels that that's what they do. Yes. They interview the experts and praise God, they should do that. Maybe it's because interviewing two really busy people is a nightmare. But what what I have found is sharing the stories of real people and what what is it about their journeys that inspires people or that they can connect to. 
And from the first book, uh, I think I'm a woman of faith and I think God put me on a path that was not what I was planning. (laughs) I was, I was going to be an ICU doctor where my patients were intubated and I could calculate the answers for the ventilation changes every day. (laughs) Uh, And then I had a baby and said, oh snap, who's going to raise this? And I went to outpatient where there was less than calculatable answers. (laughs) There was relationships and they were messy and they, they were you know, had mental health problems. And I was like, I just want to take care of their diabetes. And it turns out if I want their diabetes to get better, I had to care about them. I had to love them. I had to be in relationship with them and I had to help them with their mental health. Uh, Having said that in that journey of finding peak performances uh, of a brain in patients, uh, whether they're there for, you know, Crohn's disease or um, a broken hip, I mean, when my goal was, can I get their brain functioning to the highest level? A channel of patients were addicts, addicted to sex, drugs, rock and roll, find, you know, cocaine, alcohol, marijuana, gambling. I mean, that addiction uh, thread in my clinic, you have to have a support group. And that support group at first was kind of a pain in the butt to figure out because it doesn't get compensated very well. And it, you got to have a room and People, you know, they half of them need to take a break for a cigarette. And I'm like, well, you can't do that in my office. Go outside. You know, those kinds of things where it wasn't what I was planning. But as I followed the data, which is what I've, you know, that's what ICU doctors do is data driven. And like when I looked out at five years and said, who was the person who was still sober? Who was the person who found their way out of that ditch? Uh, it was the people who came to group. It was the people who were in relationship. And uh, not only did they get the recipient of being cared for by a medical team, but also the the peers within their group, uh, they also went on to care for someone else. And I just think that is the spirit of what healing really looks like. And is uh, I think that's why when I see people come in and out of the space of keto teaching or advising, that I think of that new counselor who is in the clinic and it's her first, you know, real job. And, oh, she crashes and burns so often. (laughs) Unless a team around her says the journey is in the long game of caring for them. And as you care for yourself, but also the flashy stuff with which drug should I be using first? And if you had it on for three and a half weeks instead of four, and I have mine at this many milligrams for just later, and you had, you know, like, okay, that's noisy. And although those are interesting to the clinician in me, it was the outcomes of, did I forge relationships? Did I help them find a place to forge a relationship to go through the struggle together? And I think that is the number one thing that I look at for uh, who's going to do great on a ketogenic journey, somebody who's doing it with, in a community. So other than diet and community, are there other lovers that you've seen, I guess, move the needle or help people to stay consistent and heal from these metabolic illnesses? Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't talk about them very often, but when once they get past the wave and they get into let's just say 16, eight, they're pretty good about okay. you know limiting their food to eight and then they stall but their life is too busy to take their eating window closer or it's, they don't want to fast and that's all right. Um, There's muscle development is really important. (laughs) 
that I, uh, you know, I don't talk about it a lot because I actually think back to the patients that really struggled with the advice that their orthopedic surgeon said, you need to lose 50 pounds before I can replace that knee. And in the process of trying to get the weight off, they destroyed another knee, which was good for the orthopedic surgeon, but really not good for the patient. That weight loss happens in the kitchen, Mm -hmm. that um, muscle strength is not where weight loss happens, but it is where vitality and metabolism can grow. Uh, I'm also a big fan of the sauna and, and how that is an exercise mimicking process that I don't like the heat any more than probably any other person does, but you learn to tolerate it and you learn that it really does have quite the therapeutic processes inside that rhythmical, how often are you going? I, I, I have three sons, so CrossFit is how is the exercise place that we like to go to mainly because they can compete and and they're not competing with me because I, I just try to live through that thing. But <laughs> like, uh, I, I find that, again, why, why does somebody go back to a gym? Because the person knows them and there's a sense of community. And boy, CrossFit has a good reputation for doing that. So I, between the muscles, muscle building, actually true muscle training and sauna, those are really important. But other places that I do a lot of education that I feel like a broken record sometimes is how to slow down the brain. Um, One of those places is I like to send them to a float. Have you ever done one of these? No, but I've heard just being in water, right? Well, so it is like the dead sea salt is so (laughs) high in salinity uh, that you float. Okay. And nothing grows in there because it's so salty, but they have like what little towns used to have for tanning beds. They now are starting to have these floats, which is a 1500 pounds of magnesium salt in about, you know, eight inches of water in a, it's like a little tub, but it's like a capsule and you close the top and you, there's no lights. You can have sound, but I don't have sound, no lights. And then you're floating. So there's no touch. And you are in a bath of magnesium, which is truly helpful for slowing down your mind, really helping muscle and body tissue repair. And, and it makes them practice. Like you can go an hour without your phone (laughs) (laughs) by meditating and really, you know, having a talk with God and just being there. Um, My husband and I have had been known for our, our, dates at to asana and dates to floats <laughs> both of which we have opposite sides we go to and come back and we're, we're both nicer at the end so that's another thing that i i really do find uh, like i've had a couple of folks where i was titrating them off of marijuana and really okay. walking them through 30 years of you know really difficult brain problems they'd been keto but now they were trying to step up to this higher level of health which you know and I think it was 30 floats before they the symptoms really went away. It just, their body was so depleted from magnesium. And as much as I could, I mean, I could put an IV in there and they could have some IV, but that's, you got to go to an ICU for that. You can drink magnesium, but it usually comes out the backside or they just don't take it often enough. And so it turns out that it is one of those elements that can be absorbed through the skin, which I didn't know until I, now I know. Uh, and it was not just the magnesium that that patient really benefited from. It was that programmed time of quiet in today's world. Yeah. So I love it. It's my, my personal vacation in an hour is afloat, but so that's another thing I'm trying to think of what else I do that might be outside the norm. I'll have to try that because I recommend magnesium spray, same thing. It's topical, but it's obviously it's not as concentrated as the float, but I have a few clients that have had brain trauma and they'll do floats. Mm. 
So I should definitely, I'm, I'm interested. Totally. That sounds pretty cool. In fact, I got the idea from the brain literature. Um, oh, it is, okay. Okay. Yep. They have, there's uh, places where you can actually have IV ketones, mm-hmm. which is, but, and it was the IV infusions of magnesium and how much it settled down and really helped not just their mental health, but uh, the ability for their brain to repair from a distant injury. Like this was not yesterday's brain trauma. This was a decade ago. And that literature shows uh, that magnesium is a really big, important part of that. Um, But getting an IV magnesium is like, that's terrible. (laughs) Like, good luck. Uh, So I know you also work with people that aren't the most wealthy. How do you make wellness for all? Oh, you know, it's true. Uh, In my, my husband continues to tease me (laughs) that we have three sons, right? And we'll pull up to a, a, a watermelon stand and he'll say, kids, is this a business? or a hobby. <laughs> and, you know, of course you can have hobbies and they're, they're like nice to have in life. But if you're going to say it's a business, then it means you actually make money. Right. <laughs> and for many years, you would pull up to my medical clinic and say, kids, is this a business <laughs> or a hobby? And I'd be like, shut up, Chad. <laughs> God's really proud of what I'm doing. <laughs> Even if it doesn't pay the mortgage this month. So I have a spirit of this. And I think it truly is my mother living through my, my actions probably. But I, I don't shy away from the idea that um, I do a support group every week on Tuesday mornings from eight to nine. It's across the parking lot in the bowling alley called the pin chasers and anybody who wants to come to it can come we answer keto questions and i i host that support group for anybody that wants to come and i did that in south dakota i now do that here in tampa and i just find that it's a true reward uh creating a space that whoever wants to come i don't care medicare medicaid and once you're in a clinic long enough you know that the the triage in isn't just do you take it but how long do they wait and did you able to meet their needs during the time when they needed them so that act of service is one thing. I also have found that, you know, the work that we do on YouTube, selfishly, the first first video I ever put on YouTube was on sleep because I was so tired of trying to explain to the patient what they needed to know about sleep. And I only get 20 minutes or this business becomes a hobby. I can't pay for the 10 people outside this room to, to support me right. if I'm going to spend an hour and a half with you every time you come in. And I don't like that it's that kind of business model, but it is. And um, so YouTube became a place where I could teach. And I find that to be the, one of the best things I do is how do you give back and teach? And I think that's the that's the place you should model for your kids like that. They aren't going to do acts of service if they never see acts of service. Sure. So that's I love it. I And I. I get it. I think most people that get a name on social media, they stop working with individuals because it's not scalable. Right. And, and I think that's why it's that you're trying to find that balance of working with individuals still. So you never lose that patient pulse of what's really going on in the real world, but also trying to educate as many people as possible. And so I can see how that YouTube blend really makes sense. And, and then being able to still support your family uh, with three teenage boys. So it totally makes sense what you're doing. Yeah. Well, I've told my husband, he he's pushed back a little bit on this, that I have a, a dream that I would be able to do a podcast, which right now I don't need one more thing, but um, a podcast where the patients um, would be a season. Okay. And it would be, what is the example of what happens behind the exam room door of a doctor taking care of somebody mm-hmm. who is on a ketogenic journey? And 
I, I haven't gotten the green light for that one yet because it doesn't make a lot of sense yet, but I still think it's a good idea. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, the more information and stories, I think stories, I mean, you write all your books and stories and I think they're so powerful in that way. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Um, where can people find, I, I know you have like some ketone supports, but where can people find your products, your books, your YouTube channel, and where else on social media? Right. Well, thankfully the word Dr. Boz has become a lot easier to find. So you could probably type that in and get to most places, but my website, Dr. Boz was taken. So this oh. was many years ago where I did Boz MD. Uh, and then as I got more popular, the price of his website went up. So I said, forget that. <laughs> anyway, so bozmd.com is where you can find the calendars. And, you know, I think the other part that um, I do translate into supporting my clinic is I offer an online course of what it is I teach. Uh, that online course is for beginners to pretty advanced keto people. And then anybody who wants to help heal brains in their community, one of my online courses is about uh, brains from trauma to repair. It is my best work. It's what I, I served the Department of Defense and trained their uh, leaders uh, many times for that 12-hour course on what is it I do to get the best outcomes for somebody whose brain isn't working optimi optimally. And that course is designed for anybody who wants to pass it on to a youth group, um, you know, the, a wrestling team, anybody with a head injury, uh, or people who take care of others with addiction. I think brain injuries come in lots of shapes and sizes. And after many years of taking care of people, these were the things that don't require a prescription, but they do require people that are serving and taking care of those with, without a brain that's not working as healthy. Every time I give the course, I remember a few things I'm not doing right. <laughs> like, oh, I should do better at that too. So those are the places you can find those courses. Okay. I didn't realize you had courses. Yeah. I'll have to look into that. That's pretty cool. Well, thank you so much for your time again. It's always so real and humbling. And I love all that you do to serve the people. And I mean, it's not as common to see on social media. So thank you. No, I appreciate it too, that there are very few people who are openly women of faith. And I just say, thanks for being brave enough to be there with me because it isn't the easiest place to be, but I think it's sustainable that I can yeah. stay here. I mean, There's I always say that meat helped a lot with my healing, but it's really my faith that really brought on that extra level of no matter what happens, if you have a level of hope and knowing that there's more to come. I think it just makes no matter what happens in life, no matter how hard things are, there's going to be another day that's better and, and bigger. So, oh, that's beautiful. Let's end there. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me again. Okay, guys, I hope that you enjoyed this conversation. I love that Dr. Boz is so honest, so real, so transparent. And most of all that she works one-on-one -on -one with her patients and sees what really moves the needle rather than just picking out evidence-based research, but rather seeing what behaviorally, what longevity wise really helps people to heal and heal for the long-term. If you are struggling or stalling on a carnivore diet, I would really consider taking a look at your ketones. Maybe you need some extended fasting, but only if you're able and ready to do that. This is where I think sometimes working with a practitioner or a provider is always ideal as there's a lot of resources online, but that doesn't necessarily mean that resource is beneficial for your specific state. All right, guys, you know the drill, make sure to eat a lot of meat, fatty meat, and take care of your bodies because it's the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye guys.
Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.